Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning again, and welcome to the third Sunday of Advent. You can see that we've lit our third candle, and that means we're only two and a half weeks away from Christmas. Can you believe that? Don't mean to stress you out. Two and a half weeks away. Uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a blessing. This season's been a blessing to me. I hope it has been for you as well, as we really begin to count down and get excited about celebrating the coming of the Christ child. Over the past two weeks, we've been walking down a very deliberate path, a very deliberate Advent path. And we're taking a look at, you see the title on the screen, The Wondrous Gift That God Has Given Us in the Person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, we're looking at just how it is that God has seen fit in His sovereign plan to bring Him into our world. And so on the first Sunday of Advent, two weeks ago, we looked at God's original promise related to the coming of a Redeemer. I call it the mother of all prophecies. It comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put it on the screen so that you can see it. Very important passage. Immediately after the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve fall into sin, and they find themselves suddenly alienated from God and ashamed before God and before each other, God makes this incredible promise to all of mankind. He will deal with the problem of sin. And so God says to the serpent who deceived Eve, you see it on the screen, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he, key word, this seed of the woman will strike at your head, Satan, and you, Satan, will strike at his heel. And so we're given a promise here that there's coming a unique seed of a woman who will come and strike the serpent reversing the curse and overcoming sin and death. And as we make our way through the succeeding generations, it comes more and more into focus. A, a picture begins to form of what this Savior, this Messiah, is going to be like. And last week we walked our, our way, we sort of weaved our way through the Old Testament canon, looking at what I call the breadcrumbs that God has left along the path that show us who this Messiah will be and what he will be like. And all of those breadcrumbs flow out of Genesis 3.15, identifying what I call the serpent striker, the one who will redeem a people and rescue them from their sin. And so we looked at, a number, I think we looked at 15 prophecies last Sunday, but in particular we looked at Isaiah, and we looked at Micah, and we looked at Daniel, and we looked at Zechariah, and we wrapped up with Malachi. So today what I want to do as we're walking down this path is to to sort of come out of the Old Testament canon and begin to approach the New Testament Gospels to see exactly how those prophecies came to life at the turn of this first century A.D. Now, last Sunday I asked you a series of questions. I said, we're not going to answer them all this week, but I wanted you to start pondering those. Let me recap a few of them. They all center around this particular question. What were the expectations among the Jews of the first century related to the Messiah? What were they expecting? What were they looking for? What were they hoping for? Did they have a single set of expectations of who he would be and what he would do? Is it possible that some of them were unsure or even confused about who the Messiah would be? Were all the Jews looking intently for him in that day? Or were some content to press on with their own form of Judaism, their own Jewish traditions, without a Messiah? How about the people in power? Were they looking for a Messiah? Would they be excited to see a Messiah come to earth, the people in power? Or would they be fearful of that? Those are all important questions to ask as we look at the context of the Christmas story. 
It's interesting, if you look at the literature of this day, particularly if you study some of the works that come out of the intertestamental period, what you find is a great deal of diversity. The answer is no, not every Jew in the land was hoping for and waiting for Messiah to show up in the first century. In fact, some had given up all hope that he would ever come. Some had rejected the whole notion of a personal Messiah altogether. They had come to believe that the the picture being drawn in the Old Testament canon was just a symbol, a symbol of a coming age, an age of peace, but not an actual person. And then there were those in the land who had no desire at all to see a Messiah come if he was going to come in and upset the balance of power and all the structures that were in place in the first century. Even for the Jews who were still hoping and waiting, there still was not a single agreed-upon conception so that everybody would see this Messiah and go, hey, look, everybody, there he is. It's that simple. He's that obvious. There was no agreed-upon conception of that. So some Jews believed that he would primarily come in a kingly way or in a militaristic way. Others were looking for a Messiah that came in a priestly way or a prophetic way. But what everybody seemed to agree upon, what everybody seemed to ultimately want was for Messiah to come and to save Israel from her oppressors. That, they would, that he would come and that he would conquer Israel's enemies, that he would subjugate the Gentiles, and in some fashion he would purify Jerusalem, regather the 12 tribes to the land, and usher in this, this eternal age of peace and prosperity for the Jewish people. But here was the challenge. Though everybody wanted that, that was the desires of their heart, the challenge was, how do we interpret the biblical record? How do we make sense of all these prophecies that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures? Now, we looked at some of these last week, but consider these questions. Would the Messiah arrive as a humble king riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9, or would he come as the king of war who fights the nations in the very same book of Zechariah chapter 14? Would he be the the human son born in the city of David from Micah 5? Or would he be the son of man who's coming on the clouds of heaven as described in Daniel 7? Would he be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 or the royal king of Psalm 2? You can see as you look at those very disparate pictures why there was so much confusion in the air. And then to make things worse, you know, there's always the liberal thinkers in every society. And, And later on, some of the more liberal Jewish thinkers began to speculate that that if Messiah was real and personal, he would come only if the people showed themselves to be worthy of his coming. In other words, they put the responsibility on themselves. They, they basically, the way they looked at it was they would get the Messiah that they deserved. And so you see this type of teaching dotted throughout the Talmud. For example, one rabbi said this. He comments on Daniel and Zechariah. He says, if the people of Israel are righteous and worthy, the Messiah will come with the clouds of heaven. But if they're not righteous, he will come lowly and riding on a donkey. And so tragically, that that mindset is still very common in Israel today, that their future is in the hands not of a sovereign God, but in the hands of the people themselves. They believe that they are their own key to ushering in peace and prosperity, that God is somehow going to respond to their righteousness rather than them bowing their knee to God and seeking his righteousness. And so what Paul wrote about, and we just studied this in recent months in Romans chapter 9, is still true of Israelis today. Paul wrote this, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. That is still happening in the land today. Now, perhaps the most common way that early Jewish scholars 
dealt with these sort of uh, two different views of the Messiah was what we call the two Messiah theory. Many of the scholars early in, in Jewish history, they speak of two very distinct Messiahs, two distinct men described in the Hebrew Scriptures. One of them they call Messiah ben David, David's Messiah, the one who comes in victory, right? The king, the conquering king, the, the victor over all things. And this is the guy that was expected to, to rescue Israel and free her from her oppressors. But before he comes, they spoke of a Messiah ben Joseph, named after his famous ancestor Joseph, who was a suffering man, right? He suffered at the hands of the Egyptians, ultimately saving the nation of Israel. So many of the religious scholars of the day saw the Messiah as both the suffering servant and a victorious king, just as we do, only they, just, they speculated that it had to be two different men, two different messiahs doing two completely different things, rather than what we see in the New Testament, that it's one man in two comings. Does that make sense? One theory, in fact, this is interesting, seeks to address the issue of atonement, and, and some rabbis believe that Messiah ben Joseph would one day fight as Israel's military commander. He would lead his troops into battle, and he would be killed by the enemy. He would die as a substitution, an atonement, for the people in battle. That's just one of the theories that you find floating around among the rabbis. Another theory has Messiah ben Joseph dying in some way, and then Messiah ben David coming and resurrecting him. And so it's very interesting to see how the rabbis and the scholars of Judaism often nibbled around the corners of, of Christology, but never quite landing in the right place. Why? Because they refused to look at the New Testament as the solution to the quandary that they're in. And so in many ways, Jewish scholars have always found themselves grasping at straws to try to explain all of the statements in their own scriptures, apart from, of course, the New Testament. Now, the biggest objection that you'll find from from uh, Jews today, related to Jesus, his Messiah. You'll often hear this. They'll say, well, I don't understand, Christian. Why couldn't the Messiah finish the whole mission in one coming? I mean, is God not able to do that? Is the Almighty not better than that, that somehow he's got to come twice? Why couldn't he just wrap up the mission in one coming? Which is a legitimate question, right? And that's something we ought to be able to answer. But using the same reasoning, you could ask a Jew, well, why did God wait to reveal the Torah until Moses? Why didn't he give it to Adam right away? Adam sins, here's the Torah. Or, or at least give it to Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish people. But he waited more than 600 years to give it to Moses. The fact is, throughout Scripture, we see God progressively revealing his word and his promises to his people, but only after he builds an appropriate foundation for them to receive it and live it out. So he works on his schedule, not our schedule, right? All things unfold according to his decree, which he established before the foundations of time, right? And so he's operating on his schedule according to his decree, not according to what we want and what we desire. What does mankind want? Mankind wants a genie, right? Mankind wants a God to come down and just wave his magic wand and make everything comfortable and peaceful and joyful and give us all the prosperity we could ever want. The problem is this. Man has a real problem. We talk about the good news of the gospel, but first there's the bad news, right? Man has a real problem that has to be dealt with, and God has promised to deal with it in Genesis 3.15, and that is the problem of sin. And that's why the Messiah had to come first on a spiritual mission before he could accomplish his kingly mission, to deal with the heart of man, 
to die as an atoning sacrifice for sin, and then at some point in the future, we know that he will return and fulfill every promise that he's made to us in his word and establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. So that's what's going on in the first century among the Jews at the time. Lots of confusion, lots of different expectations of what's going on. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn now to the Gospel of Matthew. What we're going to do today is stay in Matthew. Next week we'll be in Luke. And then our last Sunday of Advent, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So we're going to hit everybody but Mark. Mark has very little to say about the Christmas story. But we're going to be in Matthew, Luke, and John. So go to Matthew, go to the very first verse. And keep in mind as we dig into Matthew's gospel that it's considered to be the most Jewish of all the four. It's written from a Jewish perspective, primarily for a Jewish audience, with the point to prove to the people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so naturally it has very strong connections to the Old Testament prophecies. Yeah, we're going to read the genealogy. I know that freaks everybody out, right? Because we usually skip right to chapter 2. But let's read this because there's tons of stuff in here. You're going to be surprised, I think. So let's look at verse 1. The record of the genealogy. By the way, my Greek scholars out there, what is the Greek word for genealogy? You'll be surprised by this. It's Genesis. Genesis, or we would say Genesis in English. Okay? So the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, there's the royal title, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's, here's what Matthew's doing by, by putting it in that way. He views the coming of Christ as something like a new Genesis. This is something like a new Genesis. Adam had failed in the beginning, right? But the, the second Adam, or the last Adam, Jesus, he will not fail. So this is something like a new Genesis. In Matthew's mind, the deepest beginnings of, of history are here, not just the birth of the world, but the birth of the Savior of the world. And that's the perspective he's coming at here. And I cannot emphasize, by the way, the importance of these two phrases, son of David and son of Abraham. Those really are the two greatest lineage promises that we see throughout the Old Testament. Think about this for a second. The promise given to David was what? Of a son who would be king forever an eternal throne. And the promise given to Abraham was of a seed who will be a blessing to all people. And that would include the Gentiles as well, right? So son of David screams, Israel, here is your Messiah and king. And son of Abraham says, hey, nations of the world, here is your hope. So both are addressed here. Very, very important, especially for those of us here today who are Gentiles. Now, the purpose of Matthew's genealogy is to establish the human pedigree of this son of David, something that that was and still is, by the way, incredibly important to Jewish people, to understand their lineage. And the best way to look at this list of names is really to break them up into three sections. And I know some of our English Bibles already do that, broken up into three sections, right? And, and we can basically trace it like this. It, it, it aligns with Israel's history. The first section, you could say, is, is Matthew tracing the upward trajectory of Israel from Abraham to David. Then you get the second section, which traces Israel's downward descent into sin and ultimately into exile. And then the third and last section trends upward again from Judah's return to the land all the way to the coming of Messiah. So it's organized beautifully here. By the way, not every single name is included. This is typical of Jewish genealogies. Not every name is, is put in here. Think about it if you could do thousands of years of, of a genealogy. 
What Matthew and Luke, by the way, both do is put key names in here. And oftentimes you'll see, for example, we're going to see in Matthew today that Joseph, the father of Jesus, is called the son of David. Well, we know there was a ton of generations between David and Joseph, but that's the way the Jews often looked at things. So it's organized very carefully here by Matthew to send us a message. So let's look at section one. By the way, you might want to highlight or underline some key names in this. So I'll let you know which ones are really important. So verse two, Abraham, think that's important? Yeah, Abraham's a big one. Was the father of Isaac, very important, underline him. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and together we call those three what? The patriarchs of Israel. Good, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, the father of who? Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Oh my goodness. Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan. And Nashan, the father of, not salmon the fish, Salmon. <laughs> Every time I read that, I'm like, I, I just immediately get this fish in my mind. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. So let's look again at our list from last Sunday. We talked about the Old Testament prophecies and, and how throughout the Old Testament canon we see the Messiah is coming from these particular men. Okay, starts with Shem, right? Remember Shem, the son of Noah? Genesis 9.26 said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So we know the Messiah is going to be a Semitic man, man from the line of Shem. Now why isn't Shem shown here in Matthew's genealogy? Because Matthew, again, writing a Jewish gospel, starts with Father Abraham, right? The very first Jew. He marks the beginning of the Jewish people. So he doesn't go any further back than Abraham. What's interesting is when you look at Luke's genealogy in Luke 3, he does. Now, Luke is a Gentile himself, and Luke is writing to a much more universal audience. So in his genealogy, by the way, he doesn't refer to Jesus as Messiah there because that's a particularly Jewish term. But he takes the time to go up back beyond Abraham, all the way back to who? To Adam himself, the universal nature of the Messiah in the gospel. All the way to Adam, and of course, he lists both Noah and Shem in his genealogy. You can look at that on your own in Luke chapter 3. So the patriarchs then, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We looked at those guys already. And then we have Judah. Judah is extremely important. Judah is, is not the oldest of Jacob's son. He's the fourth son by Leah. Genesis 49.10, we looked at it last Sunday, says the scepter, which is that thing that the king always held, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So we know that the Messiah ultimately has to come. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, he has to come from the tribe of Judah. Now, why is Jesse important in this? Because Jesse is the father of David. By the way, that too is prophesied. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse... And a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So we see the Messiah in Isaiah 11 coming from the, the, the spring of Jesse. And then finally, he says, David the king. Right? And that's the promise we looked at last Sunday from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and kingdom, David, will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Imagine being promised an eternal throne. Now, I had you underline some other names in here as well. I should have, actually. Go back to your, your text, verses 2 to 6. 
Underline Tamar in verse 3. Underline in verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. What is unique about those names? They're women. Audible gasp. Audible gasp. Women. Guys, understand how unique this is. In a patriarchal society like first century Israel, the fact that there are women in a genealogy is absolutely amazing. Just that very fact alone is very unique. But there's something even more amazing than the fact that we have these three females. What is also unique about these three females? None of them are Jews. Audible gasp again. In the line of Messiah, we have three Gentile women. The first two are Canaanites, and Ruth, of course, is a Moabite, right? And then there's something even more interesting about this. We have women, we have Gentiles, and then if you think about the lives of, I'll just use Tamar and Rahab, and then I'll throw in the woman who's mentioned next, Bathsheba, and what do we know about their lives? They're not exactly beacons of purity. And yet Matthew, of all the names he could put in here and showing the generations, chooses to put women, Gentiles, and women that were involved in adultery and prostitution and things of that nature. So why? Why does he do this? Guys, this is one of the reasons why you should never just gloss over genealogies. There is tons of important information here. I'm convinced that Matthew's purpose, even in this list of simple names, is to communicate the gospel of grace right out of the gate. What if he told you that, A, God always intended from the beginning to use Gentiles in his plan of redemption? It's true. Or B, that God's plan all along was to make provision for the forgiveness of the worst kinds of sins you can imagine, including adultery and prostitution. And that God would seek to save both Jewish and Gentile sinners. I believe that's the message that Matthew's giving us here in including these ladies. By the way, are there some women in this list that he could have put in there, ones you might expect more? How about Sarah? Where's Sarah? Where's Rebecca or Rachel or Leah? Those are the Jewish matriarchs, and yet Matthew doesn't include them. It's almost as if Matthew says, you know, look, I don't need to put them in there. They're well-known, but consider this for just a second. Here's four new matriarchs to consider as it relates to the gospel of grace. That's pretty amazing stuff. This is part of his new genesis, where his greatest concern, God's greatest concern, is not necessarily the the purity of the bloodline, but his mercy and forgiveness that is coming through his one and only son. This genealogy is really an amazing thing. Now, let's look at the second section. As I said, this, this begins to talk about the downward descent of Israel into sin and eventually exile. David was the father of Solomon. He's important, right? By Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. So yes, we get the mention of the man who was murdered by David, Uriah the Hittite. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. We also talked about him last week, right? He's the guy that splits the kingdom of Israel into two, right? His foolishness divides the kingdom into northern and southern kingdoms, rival kingdoms, Israel and Judah, okay? Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Now, beginning with Abijah, Matthew's now going to list 12 kings, Twelve kings in the line of Messiah. Which kingdom were they kings of? Israel or Judah? Judah. 
This is a partial list of the Davidic dynasty that he's going to walk us through. And by the way, only some of these men were what we would call good kings, meaning that they walked in the ways of their father David, that they, that they uh, did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Some were good, some were not at all. But they're all included in the genealogy of the Messiah. So Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa, by the way, good king, was the father of Jehoshaphat, also a good king. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, good king. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, good king. um, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, by the way, the most wicked king in the history of Judah, Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah. Now, Josiah is the last, the final good king of Judah before they go into exile. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, absolutely wicked men together, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So catch the picture he's drawing here from Israel's golden age under the reign of David. She descends sharply into idolatry and sin. She's exiled to Babylon. She has lost her land. She's lost her temple. She's lost her king. Dark times for for Judah. Now, what about the northern kingdom at this point? What's happened... We're talking here about the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. What happened to the northern kingdom? By the time Hezekiah is king, the northern kingdom is what? Gone. Conquered by the Assyrians. The people scattered to the winds. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel lost. Completely deported out of the land. Their gene pool mixed. Ten lost tribes of Israel. Which two tribes survive? Benjamin and Judah. Judah. Which tribe does the Messiah have to come out of? Judah. So God is, God is in a sovereign plan, is sustaining the line of Messiah even through the exile. Very, very important to understand. Okay, section three. Now we're going to talk about coming back to the land of Israel. Verse 12. After the deep deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father, father of Zerubbabel. Okay. Now, Zerubbabel is a very important guy because he is the man who leads the exiles back to the land. He is a grandson in the Davidic line, the grandson of a king by the name of Jehoiakim. He's mentioned here by his nickname, Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was one of the final kings of the kingdom of Judah. So Zerubbabel, or however you want to put it, Zerubbabel, there's so many different pronunciations for him. He is in the line of David. He is going to maintain it, not as a king, because the office of king now is gone, but is the head and the leader of the diaspora. Verse 13. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Tzadok. Very important high priest in the line of the Messiah as well. Tzadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. Deep breath. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who who was called what? Again, the royal title, Messiah. Messiah. So the best way to understand this last section is to see it through the lens of God's faithfulness. He had promised a seed through Abraham. He had promised a king through David. And Israel had waited and waited and hoped and hoped, generation after generation, And here's the amazing thing, and maybe you've seen that this is the way God works in your life. When things look darkest, when all of Judah was sitting in Babylon under judgment, no temple, no land, no king, that's when God began to shape this final stage 
of Israel's history and prepare the ground for the coming of the Messiah. When things look darkest, God moved. In fact, in Isaiah 53, the prophet uses these words to describe Messiah. He says, he grew up like a root out of parched ground. The root of Jesse would be faithfully delivered to Israel out of the parched ground of the exile in Babylon. Does that make sense? Good. Now, that's a genealogy, and there's tons in there. Here's what we want to do in the time we have left. Next week, we're going to, talk, we're going to, we're going to go down to street level on the story of Christmas, and we're going to look at some of the ordinary characters like uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. We'll look at all those characters. What we want to do in the time we have left today is to sort of see the story from above, from 30,000 feet, to look above ground level and to see the really powerful people that are involved in this story. Do you know that there's some really powerful characters behind the Christmas story? Let me, let, me, let me share them with you, and we'll talk about their role in the process. Let's start with the biggest of the big guys. Okay? The most powerful man on the earth at this time. What's his name? Caesar Augustus. Actually, his name is Gaius Octavius. And, and he's a guy that literally had more titles than any man should ever have. Let me share some of them. He was called Augustus, which in Latin means the majestic one. Right? He was called Sebastos, which means the venerable one. He was called Caesar, which was his adopted name from his adopted father, Julius Caesar. He was called Imperator, which means commander of the armies. He was called Phileas Dei, which means son of a god. And, of course, he was called Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of Roman religion. All of these things were wrapped up in one person in the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. That's how... How we know him today, by the way, that's how Luke describes him in Luke chapter 2. He was 57 years old at the time that Jesus was born. What does that mean? It means he had been ruling in the land of Israel. Actually, I shouldn't say that. He's ruling this vast empire that, that he's in charge of for more than 20 years. And his empire was absolutely massive. You know, this gives me an excuse to do something, right? To put a map on the screen. There we go. This really is one of the most amazing, like, Quick images you can see. Every colored region you see there is the Roman Empire at the time of Caesar Augustus. How massive this territory was. Red dot is Rome. Blue dot over here is what? Jerusalem. Good. Massive empire. So you can see there how far away Israel is from imperial Rome. It's on the very eastern edge of the empire and because it was so far away, and because it was really lacking in a lot of the natural resources that the Romans loved, Israel, this may come as a shock, was not a huge priority for a man like Augustus. It just wasn't. If anything, its greatest purpose was to serve as a buffer state because just to the east of Israel was a very powerful and growing empire called the Parthian Empire, and Israel served as a buffer, a, a militaristic outpost that Rome could use to fend off the Parthians. And on top of that, if you look at the history and what Rome says about the Jews, they found the Jewish people and their religion to be very strange. And they believed the Jews to be the most persnickety worshipers on the face of the earth. So a lot of the, the, the Roman rulers and the governors, even men like Pontius Pilate later on, they, they literally talk about Israel being really more trouble than it's worth. I mean, it's just not high on their, their particular um, agenda. But to the north is Damascus. And to the south is Egypt. And those are both crown jewels in Rome's empire. 
So with all that said, you would think, well, surely Augustus has nothing to do with the Christmas story. And yet he does. This is the way God, I love the way God works, that God would take the most powerful man on the earth at this time and use him, use his heart, use his mind to bring about his Messiah. So he has a role. What is it? He calls for a census. Now, the Romans were prone to do this about every 14 years. He called for a census of the known world. Why did he want to do a census? Why would any king want to have an accurate accounting of all the people in his empire? Taxes. It's always taxes. That's like the answer. If it's not Jesus or God's sovereignty, it's taxes. I mean, it's just a constant theme of humanity. Taxes. That's why any emperor, king, president, or governor wants to know who's in his kingdom. So this was about making sure that, that Rome was extracting as much revenue as possible from all of her imperial provinces. And you can imagine what a big job that must have been. So this was a huge part of the reason why there was so, so much agitation in the land at the time that Christ was born. Rome was an occupying force. You have to understand that. The Jews highly favored their land, and Rome was an occupying force. It agitated them. The Romans, had again, had no understanding and no respect for Jewish religion. That frustrated them, and they were constantly extracting these taxes. And by the way, we often talk in the American experiment, taxation without representation. That's why we fought a revolution, right? For Jews living under Rome, it was taxation plus oppression. They got absolutely nothing from paying taxes to the Romans. It was simply theft. And so you can imagine why the Jewish people, why they, why they hated the Gentiles so much. I mean, their history is one of being under the thumb of Gentiles, but they hated the Roman people. They felt that their history and their religion and their way of life was being denigrated, but there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. So Augustus is player number one. The second guy we need to know about is, is this guy. His name is Herod. Now, I know there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, and it gets very confusing. Uh, there is uh, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and of course, Herod Agrippa one and two. So it can be really, really confusing. But the guy we're talking about, the guy at the center of the Christmas story, is the original Herod. He's the head of the clan. He is the big guy, and he would become known as Herod the Great. Why is he so great? Is he a great guy? He is anything but a great guy. But he is of special character, that's for sure. He, is, he was brilliant and insane all at the same time. He was uh, powerful, yet totally insecure and paranoid. Always the consummate politician, the survivor, the one who would make connections with anybody that would help him hold on to power. He was a very interesting guy. We know that he executed one of his wives, two of his sons, several extended relatives, at least one high priest, and all in the name of stamping out any threat to his power. He was such a maniac that Augustus, at one time, was known to have said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because his sons were constantly under threat because people were always whispering that, hey, your son is he's working to, to overthrow you. So the thing that makes him stand out the most, Herod, is that he was... The greatest builder of the ancient world, and, and even secular historians will tell you, the greatest builder of the ancient world. In fact, when you go to Israel today, and a bunch of us are going in just five months from now, what you see is that his building projects, many of which are still standing in some form, dominate the landscape of Israel, even today. The city and the harbor at Caesarea that he built, his palace and tomb at 
Herodium, his mountain fortress that we know as Masada. And most importantly, this guy Herod is the one who extends the Temple Mount. The very Temple Mount we're going to walk on was extended by Herod the Great. Now, Herod came to power in the year 37 BC. Think about this now for a second. What year was Jesus born? Don't say zero. <laughs> Probably five or six BC. We a little bit off on our calendar. Herod comes into power in 37 BC. So by the time Jesus is born, Herod's been ruling for more than 30 years. And he is a good ruler in terms of before him, Israel had been a very war-ravaged country, but he brings stability to the land. And had he been anything other than what he was, he would have been considered a benevolent and good ruler. The problem with Herod is what? He's not really Jewish. He's the king of the Jews, but he's not really Jewish. In fact, he was born in Ashkelon, which was an old Philistine city. His father was an Idumean or an Edomite, okay, from the line of Esau. So related, but not Jewish. And his mother was the daughter of an Arab sheik. So he was a mixed breed man and not seen as Jewish by his subjects. So, so whatever he did, even everything that he did, including extending the temple and making it bigger and more glorious, he did to try to win the love of the people and he never could win it because he wasn't Jewish. So we have Augustus, the overlord far away. We have the maniac king right there in, in Jerusalem. Now, before we go on, let me ask the question, because I know we wanted to ask this. Were those two powerful men, Augustus and Herod, were they watching for Messiah? Think about that for a second. Would Caesar Augustus have been interested in the coming of the Jewish Messiah? No, not on his radar. Would Caesar Augustus have been, have been threatened by a Jewish Messiah? Not a chance. Most powerful man in the world. It wouldn't even have been a blip on his radar screen. But what about Herod? Different story, right? Incredibly threatened by this. In fact, we're going to read in just a second in the Matthew's gospel how he responds to that. Okay, third power, power player in the land at this time are the religious factions of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What do we know about these guys? This is so important as Christ comes to the earth. By the way, when we close Malachi in the Old Testament, we don't see Pharisees and Sadducees. We open up Matthew, and there they are. So something wild happened in those 400 years in between the two, right? The rise of these religious factions, these powerful men in the land of Israel, dominating the landscape, dominating the synagogues of Israel. The Sadducees were very different from the Pharisees in the sense that they were the most well-connected families in all of Judea. They were the wealthy side of the religious authorities. They were the ones connected to the important people. And in particular, their power was centered in the temple cult. The temple was their... In fact, we read in the Gospels about the money-changing scheme that Jesus was so frustrated with that he turns the tables over. The Sadducees ran that scheme. That's just one of the ways they lined their pockets and made themselves rich off the backs of typical Jewish peasants. So the Sadducees were deeply entrenched in the power structure of Jerusalem. Were they looking for Messiah? Absolutely not. Would they have wanted Messiah to come? No way. Why? Because Messiah comes with a winnowing fork, right? He comes as a refining fire. He comes to purify, and the Sadducees were anything but pure. Now, forget the garb. Forget all the things that they're wearing. They are a corrupt bunch of religious leaders, so they were not looking for Messiah to come in the least. By the way, here's a basic truth about humanity. And this is true whether we're talking about first century Israel or America today. 
for people who are, uh, who are ensconced in the power structure of a nation, I don't care if it's power, money, whatever it might be, the last thing they want is for someone to come in and rock the boat. Now, I don't know how you feel about our, our current president. However you feel, he is rocking the boat. And that's why we see so much turmoil in this country right now. People ensconced in powerful places are threatened by his presence. And so you see societies begin to unravel when you have these people that don't mess with it. It's good. I'm, I'm, I'm living large. If you come and disrupt it, I'm going to push back. And so the Sadducees would not have wanted Messiah to come. What about the Pharisees? Now, they had a different temptation. Their temptation was not wealth. Their temptation was the love of the people. They, were, they had the fear of man in them. They wanted the approval of people. Remember how the gospel writers talk about how they like to stride through the streets and, and receive approval from the people? Oh, oh, you know, calling out to you. And they get the best seats in the synagogue. They get the most honored positions at the banquets. So they too are entrenched in a different way, but entrenched in the structure of Israel. Would they have wanted Messiah to come? Not at all. Because it would have taken the spotlight off of them. He would have been everything and they would have become nothing. And so they didn't want him to come either. So it's an interesting dynamic happening at the time of Christ. We like to think that every, it's this beautiful, peaceful, starry night and everything was just fine. Right? That's the Christmas card. The, the Christmas card version of the story is Israel's a place of peace and quiet and everybody's just praying at home, waiting for Messiah to come. Uh-uh. This is a land in turmoil. This is a land with a lot of problems. Okay, let's keep going with the narrative here. We're in uh, chapter 1 still, right? Verse 18. We'll go quickly through this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Hugely important. This goes back to Isaiah chapter 7, right? The virgin birth, one prophecy. But also, this goes back to Genesis 3. The Messiah is the seed of the woman. There's no man involved, right? So this goes back. The seed of the woman is the serpent striker. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. There it is. Again, connection to prophecy. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, right? With us is God. Isaiah chapter 7. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua right? In Hebrew. In Greek, what? Jesus. In English, Jesus. Okay? Now, we're running out of time, but there's one more interesting group of people that we have to look at in the story, and they stand alone from the other three. These guys are not, well, they're kind of power players, but I call them the seekers, and they're, they're the magi. We're going to quickly look at the magi. Maybe we'll pick up some more on them next, next week, but let's finish Let's look at the first 12 verses of chapter 2, and we'll look at the Magi briefly, and then we'll come back to it. 
Here, here's what I want to do as I go through this part of it. Can we dispel some of the myths about the Magi? Man, I hate to burst your bubble. Because in every kid's Christmas play, the Magi are the most fun. Right? The kids with the curtain on their head and, you know, they're so cute and they're carrying the little gifts and all that. Man, I got to dispel some myths here. Here we go. Now, after Jesus was born, okay, so right there, they didn't arrive when Jesus was born. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So there's some historical roots there. Magi from the east arrived where? Not in Bethlehem. In Jerusalem. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to what? To worship him. Okay. So first of all, these are not kings. Okay. I know the song. We three kings. Okay. Uh, Not kings. All right. Um, And not wise men either. As we understand that term, wise men. That, the reason that term wise men has been lodged in our brain is it comes from the old King James translation. But the word magoi in, in the Greek here is a very specific thing. And it actually, it's a Persian word that refers to a very distinct type of person. This was a guy from east, whether it's Persia or Babylon or something like that, who was involved in the inter- either the interpretation of dreams or in astrology, looking at the nighttime sky and and discerning symbols and and prophecies from what he sees among the stars. By the way, we see these guys in the book of Daniel in Babylon, and what are they called? Magicians or sorcerers. And and they're, they're not seen in a good light at all, are they? So keep that in mind. Most likely, again, these are, these are magi from Persia or Babylon to the east of Israel. Here's what's interesting. Babylon makes the most sense. Remember, where was Judah sent into exile? To Babylon, is it possible that these magi, these, these astrologers or magicians, had contact with Jews, with Jewish scholars, and began to study the Old Testament scriptures, began to look at the prophecies and become familiar with them? That's a very likely scenario. And, and clearly there were three of them, right? Look at the picture. <laughs> There's three of them. Actually, nobody knows for sure how many there were, right? Um, I mean, there could have been two, there could have been eight. I, I don't know. Uh, Matthew uses the plural, so we know there was more than one. Maybe we'll get the answer when we get to heaven. But it does sort of logically make sense. They brought three gifts, so we've assigned three magi, but we have no idea. Look at verse 3 now. This is really important because we're back to our man Herod. When Herod the king heard this, what did he hear? Hey, um, king, we're here to worship the king of Israel. Excuse me? (laughs) I'm the king of Israel. I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So unbeknownst to them, these magi use a a phrase that alarms Herod. We're we're looking for the, they didn't say real, but, or the next, but we're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, I'm right here. That's trouble because we've seen Herod's temper. And anger, as I told you, he's executed most of his family, and we know he's going to go out and massacre an entire town of infants in his rage. And so this is why all of Jerusalem is troubled, because when the king is upset, everybody's upset, because he's likely to do anything. Verse 4, and so gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, that's interesting. 
Remember, he's not a Jew. He doesn't know where the Messiah is to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. We looked at it last week, right? Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So Herod starts to do his recon. He's got a little plan working in his head. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I can come and worship him too. Sure you do. Sure you, I'm sure you want to worship him. Okay, good. I mean, the Magi didn't know any different. They, they seemed to be pretty clueless about this. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, by the way, the star, um, there's a guy that's done a whole, there's a guy, he's a PhD from Cambridge, a scientist who's done a ton of work on this. If you want the reference, send me an email. I'll, but he, he basically believes this is a comet. I mean, there's all kinds of theories out there, but he makes a really good case if, you want some, if you're one of those science-minded people that want, just let me know and I'll, I'll help you with that. Because uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. Uh, the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Just side note, the star takes him to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, when they get to Jerusalem, they seek out God's word for where the, where the Christ child is. So it's, uh, you can almost draw this parallel. Well, nature gets us to Jerusalem, but the word gets us to Bethlehem, to Christ. Just as an aside. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they went the other way. They returned to their country by another way. They were afraid. Herod is a maniac. Okay? So there's a lot more we can say about these magi. These are very interesting characters. Here's the question we have to answer. Why did they follow the star? What, what prompted all this? Why did they, they, they see the star and say, I know what that is. That's the king of the Jews. Well, verse 2 says, they saw the star in the east and they came to worship. That's the key word. They came to worship this. So catch this now. These Gentiles sought to locate the Christ child out of a desire to bow down and worship Israel's Messiah. That's amazing, you guys. These are likely Persian or Babylonians. They're pagans, they're Gentiles, but they're seeking Israel's Messiah. Now, why would they do that? Well, it's possible, again, if they were coming from Babylon, it's possible they had become familiar with, how many of you guys know Balaam's oracle in the book of Numbers? This is what Balaam says in Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. A star will shall come forth from Israel. A scepter shall rise from Israel. And so, again, by looking at other literature of the day, this, what we call Balaam's star oracle, was widely known throughout the whole world. This, this was known far and wide, even in the east, this particular oracle. So if these magi had connections with Jews in Babylon, they would have been very, very familiar with Balaam's oracle. By the way, I'm convinced that even in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, Isaiah prophesies these magi. Listen, listen to the first few verses of Isaiah 60. This is a, a prophecy spoken to Israel. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness over the peoples, 
but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear unto you. Listen, nations will come to your light. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Interesting. So here's what I believe to be the greatest significance of the Magi. And again, why does Luke doesn't record this, by the way, but Matthew does. Why? The worship of the Magi signaled to the world that Jesus is more than just Israel's king. Again, most of us in this room are Gentiles. This is really important to us. Jesus is more than just Israel's king. Jesus is their king too. That's why they're going to worship him. His authority extends to all nations, including Babylon. So this is the wonder of Christmas, guys. The good news that lost sinners from every race, every tribe, every tongue across the entire world can come to Israel's Messiah and bow down and worship him. The irony, of course, is that for the most part, the Jews rejected him. The Jews, for the most part, rejected their own Messiah. Even Israel's leaders who knew the scriptures turned their back on him out of pride and out of a desire not to shake things up. And they turned their back on him. But here we see thoroughly pagan Gentiles, even from a nation possibly that had enslaved the Jews in exile. And here they are. They're the ones studying the scriptures. They're the ones seeking out the king of Israel. So think back to Matthew's genealogy now, how he preaches the grace of God's gospel through the names of Gentile sinners. Do you see a bookend here? Do you see the same thing happening here with the story of the Magi? By recalling this part of the story, Matthew's once again showing his audience that God's grace extends beyond the borders of Israel. His grace extends even to magicians and astrologers, people that, that religious authority Israel would have completely rejected. But they're welcome at the manger. Interesting. So how grateful are you for the gospel of grace this morning? As you look at the story, hey, Gentiles, raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Yeah. How, how grateful are you that these Gentiles are in the line of Messiah, that astrologers from Babylon are included by faith, that God has seen fit to leave all these breadcrumbs in our path, so that we can come together, we can study the scriptures, and we can see the coming of Israel's Messiah. And that living on this side of the cross, guys, what a privilege we have to look back and be able to see it so much more clearly than people that lived in the first century. You're privileged. We have a documented lineage that validates his identity. We have prophecies that show us both sides of the Messiah, the suffering servant and the victorious king. And we see the faithfulness of God to bring all of it together all of it in the fullness of the times. And then we add this remarkable truth that we just learned this morning, that Jesus is Lord and Savior for both Jew and Gentile, both sinners inside of Israel and sinners outside of Israel. That God's mercy and grace extend to the ends of the earth. That, friends, is the wonder of Christmas. Had you lived in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, do you think you would have ignored his coming? Put yourself in the first century Jewish sandals for a second. If you had been living at that time, would you have ignored him out of pride? I'm a Jew. I've got everything figured out. My traditions are set. I'm, I'm, I'm entrenched in this place of, of power, of this, this structure. Don't, don't move my cheese. Don't shake things up. Don't rock the boat. Would you have been that person? Would you have turned your back? And honestly, guys, that is, 
That's a question that we ought to be asking ourselves each and every day. Will I continue to bow down and worship him? Each and every day, with the same level of energy and sacrifice and perseverance that the Magi showed 2,000 years ago. Will we seek after him in that same way? Let's pray about that. Father, uh, I, I am amazed, Lord, at, at your grace in reading through the genealogies, the way that Matthew organizes it, in, in reading about the Magi, Lord, and how these faraway Gentiles are brought near to your manger. And in between, Lord, we have these powerful men, many of whom wanted nothing to do with you, Lord, but you still in your sovereignty use them to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we are grateful this morning that you are a sovereign God. We are grateful this morning that you have seen fit to include us in your plan of salvation. Lord, we know we are so far from Jerusalem here in America, and yet your eyes are roaming throughout the earth to call your elect to yourself. Lord, we are a grateful people this morning, and for those of us this morning who walked in maybe feeling entitled, I pray that we would be humbled by this story, that we would fall to our knees and worship the one who has given us everything, the one who came, took on flesh, suffered, and died for our sin. Lord, Lord, help that to be real for us today, not just, not just a simple holiday, Lord, but as we look even at the manger on the, on the stage, we see the beauty of the birth, but we also see that red fabric which represents your blood shed for our sins. May we put those things together and be a grateful people today, Lord, for your glory. We love you. We praise you in the name of the one who came for us. Amen.